Welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits podcast, everyone. This is your co-host, Peter Chuaga, and on this episode, Colin and I will be revisiting some of Bitcoin Magazine's most prescient print articles over the years and checking out on how they hold up today. But before we do that, I want to ask everyone to check out the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 conference. Hard to believe, but it's less than 30 days away, so you're running out of time to get a ticket. For those who haven't heard, Nick Zabo, Tony Hawk, and a slew of other high-quality speakers will be there. Plus, there are some unique and cool attendee activations to explore. It's going down in San Francisco on March 27 and 28. To learn more, visit Bitcoin2020Conference.com. All right, so now with that out of the way, I turn to you, Colin, my gracious co-host, to tell the people about our issue this week. What are they seeing on BitcoinMagazine.com right now? I think uh, your adjective precedent was really good there to describe some of the stuff that we profiled from the past. So for this week's issue, we looked at a bunch of old cover stories from the original Bitcoin Magazine prints. And we wanted to kind of tell a story of, well, Bitcoin was at this juncture then or at this impasse or this was happening at this point in time. Most of these articles were sourced from, if I am correct, 2013 issues. 2013, 14, that was just kind of, I mean, that's when most of the issues came out in general. But that was also just kind of a coincidence that, well, combing through those seemed like the most... Most relevant. Relevant. Yeah. yeah. So just kind of looking at like seven to six years later, are we talking about the same stories and what stories have kind of evolved, right? Which I thought was a really cool kind of way for us to approach this issue. It was also kind of a way for us to reintroduce this concept of the weekly issue that we're doing, tying it back to the monthly issues that we used to do. And we got a lot of topics. We had an article by Aaron Van Weerdum about CoinJoin's first steps, how Dark Wallet paved the way for a more private Bitcoin, so kind of looking at Bitcoin privacy throughout the years. One of mine called Beanie Babies in Black Markets, where mainstream media gets Bitcoin wrong. Had a really fun time writing that one. Our podcaster and sometimes writer David Hollerith wrote one called Despite Utility, Bitcoin Cannot Fix Venezuela. We also had... An op-ed, I believe, right? That's right. The op-ed revisited a cover story about Bitcoin regulation in Germany. Oh, yeah. I had the latest German regulations target Bitcoin exchanges and custodians. Oh, yes, because there's that one issue of Bitcoin. Yeah, there's the German issue. Yeah, we have this German flag, which is interesting. (laughs) And then we also have what we can learn about Lightning from the Lightning Trust Chain to... Part one by Tony Sanek. Yeah, so it doesn't really fit in with our theme. That's Tony, who's this really brilliant like technical writer who just wanted to write about lightning. And so that's something we'll definitely do, and you'll see on the site. Like, yes, our theme is about revisiting some old issues, but we always have room for like really high-quality stories like Tony whenever he is, is available to write them. Right. To jump into the questions I have written here, your big article for this week, Colin, was a revisit of a... An article written by Vitalik, who actually founded Bitcoin Magazine, wrote a ton of the content back in the day. This was from a 2013 print issue, the seventh ever edition. The original article by Vitalik was called Common Misconceptions About Bitcoin, a Guide for Journalists. So you started by reading through that article, mentioned some of the misconceptions that are still there that Vitalik identified you know, mentioned some that he didn't, that didn't really exist, but you'd put on top of the list today. So what do you think kind of reading through Vitalik's article or your impressions? I thought it was interesting how, number one, some of the same problems are still around. 
namely the idea that Bitcoin is some sort of company or it represents shares in a company or is some sort of centralized thing where someone controls it, right? Because that's people's analog to everything, whether it be the stock market or banking or gold. Well, not gold, but the stock market or banking is there's someone behind the scenes. People have come into this office here in Nashville off the street you know, found us online or something and been like, oh, you guys run Bitcoin? Dude, I get that all the time. I'm like, I write for Bitcoin Magazine and then I'll tell people that and they don't know anything. And then like a few months later, they'll see me be like, oh, are you still working for Bitcoin? (laughs) It's like, I mean, I guess, yes. Like I do work for Bitcoin, but that'd be like saying like- Bitcoin works for me. Yeah, like do you work for God? Like, you know, like, yeah, you're you're a member of a church, but I found it interesting that that was one of the most common misconceptions. Another one was this idea about one of the more specific ones. Some of Vitalik's were like extremely specific critiques, which was kind of interesting to see like what people were talking about in 2013. And one of them was like this idea that Bitcoin did not flash crash to a cent in 2011. I didn't really go into the details of what engendered that rumor, but I found it interesting that even as far back then, obviously, and now Bitcoin's price is obviously so central to the conversation around it. And instead of people talking about the price flash crashing or something now, I talk about the obituaries in my article because you just see the Bitcoin obituaries everywhere and people think that since Bitcoin has not touched 20K again, it's dead. Yeah, that's one way the conversation's kind of evolved, I feel like. So Vitalik is kind of refuting a specific, like this one, you know, price fluctuation killed Bitcoin. And now we're at the point where it's like, Bitcoin doesn't die because of price changes in general. It's yeah. like there's this list of obituaries now. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. Like you pointed out, the evolution there is one of the things that I found extremely interesting. Another one that I can't believe still exists is this idea of Bitcoin security. Right. The amount of articles I've seen saying Bitcoin was hacked, <laughs> you know, and... Kind of connects to the first one, too, like that Bitcoin's yeah. a single entity company. Yeah. And that's what I think is like, what I write in my article, uh, I think like is something to the tune of like, you can't blame journalists for not parsing like block size debates or understanding how, you know, bi-directional payment channels work for Lightning Network. Like, I don't expect them to know that. Like, crypto journalists barely know that, you know. But for them not to understand the basic tenets of Bitcoin, it's like decentralized infrastructure. If you just w- read the Wikipedia article. Bro, right? Like, it's literally like the easiest thing to do. And the crazy thing about it, too, is sometimes the journalists in their articles themselves will lead with the idea that Bitcoin was hacked and later, like, correct themselves and say, well, Bitcoin wasn't hacked, but the wallet was hacked. But does it really matter? What's the difference? And for me, it just flies in the face of all sort of due diligence, I think, for a topic. I just find that in the mainstream media, and I think this is really the problem, is it's not just the fact that Bitcoin is really technically abstruse. It's so complicated that it becomes a nuisance to people and they see it as a passing fad and a thing for crazy Austrians and they just don't care, Yeah, you know? And they get clicks, I'm sure, on the... Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to frame this article, not just like what does the mainstream media kind of tend to get wrong. And, you know, I think us being journalists and in the media industry as well, it was interesting to read through this article and sometimes my heart goes out to, like as you've acknowledged, like for so-and-so at BuzzFeed to have to write about a Bitcoin hack is actually yeah. probably more complicated than they realize, and then they make mistakes like Bitcoin got hacked. Bitcoin yeah, exactly. itself is not secure. So I, I do feel for them, but at the same time, 
you know, the media biz, dude. They're just wanting the clicks. They do They're just churning the out 100 articles yep. a day and, like, just don't get the chance probably to do it. Yeah, the and there's, no, there's not as much due diligence. Like you said, it's an arms race at this point right. to see who can publish the most. And I think something that a lot of people forget, or maybe they just don't appreciate because they don't work in media. Writers have beats. And when Bitcoin started getting on media's radar, they just looked to the person who was available and who might have relevant interest, right? Like, you know, we were talking about World War II before the show, this is like the equivalent of like, shit, like our front line is thinning, get the cooks a rifle, Yeah, you know? And for Bitcoin, you you took tech journalists who might know encryption or business journalists or just anyone who might be covering a beat that's in Bitcoin's orbit and you told them, hey, go learn about this thing. We need to report by tomorrow. Right. You can't expect them to learn the entire thing. And also they don't have the right contacts. Like they don't know anyone who develops Bitcoin Core. They don't know anyone at Blockstream. They don't know what the Bitcoin Foundation is. You know, you were flying blind back in the day. So I look back at Vitalik's article and I think, okay, I'm giving a few passes. But in 2020 now, when Bitcoin has become more or less an established talking point, like CNBC is talking about it every week. There's tons more resources. Tons more that resources. To understand. Yeah, exactly. People like Forbes are hiring guys like Michael Del Castillo from Coindesk to be specific crypto reporters. You know, yeah. There are things that you can do to have an, an educated opinion on the conversation, and I still see so many of the banal and just quite frankly spurious talking points just proliferated without any sort of second uh, yeah, guessing. I, I'd say that. So I'd say like revisiting Vitalik, this article from 2013, my takeaway is sadly lots of these issues are still prevalent, if not even more easy to find. But there are also at the same time more resources. When he was writing, I think Bitcoin Magazine was essentially the only publication like, quote unquote, getting it right. Mm. Now we have lots of, you know, peers who are well educated, have journalists who like really know what they're doing when they cover this space. So there are better resources. Mm -hmm. So I think in general, it's probably a symptom of like just more people writing and reading more about Bitcoin. And so there's more bad actors out yeah. there, but there's also better resources too, I feel like. I um, agree with that. Yeah. And like the Bitcoin magazines of the world were filling a market need and arose to fill that market need, right? right? right. I mean, that's why things like Wired were founded, right? So that people could actually have a good resource to learn about these burgeoning technical things. Some of the like cryptocurrency journalism has kind of betrayed the original intentions of it as well because it's a problem in Bitcoin, misinformation and fake news and just misunderstanding. And unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to get completely fixed because it's just a problem in media in general. I mean, the way Fox News covers something is much different, or the way the New York Post covers a topic is much different from the way the New York Times covers a topic is different from the way The Guardian covers a topic is different from the way Teen Vogue covers a topic, you know. Right. At this point, media is so fractured. We talked about this on a Bitcoin Happy Hour, I think, one time. Like, media is so fractured at this point, and there are so many niche interests at play and so many targeted audiences that you have so many different perspectives. It's almost like a kaleidoscope of media interests and you're just sitting there as the viewer twisting the kaleidoscope and seeing all the different fractals and all of the different ideas from the different people. Yeah, but whether it's Fox News or it's CNN, I expect them both to like get the fundamentals about like whether Bitcoin is a company or a technology. Fair point. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't really feel... You, you're giving no passes. Yeah, no pass on that. Peter's um, out here <laughs> taking names. That's right. I'm coming for you. All right, so another interesting article that I wanted to highlight here. Bitcoin Magazine covered the potential for adoption in Venezuela back in 2014. 
our writer and podcaster. He's actually in the studio now, but doesn't have a microphone. Dave Hollerith revisited that article and spoke with Peter McCormick from the What Bitcoin Did podcast to kind of like revisit the narrative when it was originally covered by Bitcoin Magazine. I think it was just sort of highlighting like, here's a place that has a lot of potential to adopt Bitcoin. Then the narrative swung to Bitcoin's going to like fix all these problems in Venezuela. It's like the, the world's most interesting use case to watch. To now Dave's article really with Peter McCormick being on the ground in Venezuela like super recently is sort of framed as let's not overhype what Bitcoin can do to fix Venezuela. So you've covered Venezuela mm-hmm. a lot. What's your take on kind of how that narrative has swung since 2014? You know, I think David's right. I think like Bitcoiners kind of voyeuristically clung to the Venezuela. I mean, I'm guilty of this too. It was like clung to the Venezuela use case and like those stories of people using it to, you know, escape inflation or pay for goods or send remittances. And like, to be sure, like people are doing that. Like, and that's not what David is saying in his article for anyone who's thinking like, oh, why are you flooding the Venezuela use case, bro? It's like, no, people are using it. But the fact of the matter is, like, the problems in Venezuela and countries like it are so systemic and so rooted in the how the country works that overhauling how people transact and where they store their money while alleviating individual and isolated incidents of misery cannot be a panacea for the entire country, right? Like, right. the problems are just so complicated and complex that, like, shy of a complete overhaul of their political system and their economy nothing's going to save it, right? And that's why people are leaving the country. And I think that articles like this that David is giving us and uh, what Peter's doing on the ground in Venezuela too, if I have to give Peter his due. <laughs> he does. He, he offers a great interview. He does. This article is great. And like, I don't know, aside from his podcast, I haven't really seen any content out there that's like, I am a someone who knows Bitcoin. I'm a Bitcoiner who's just gotten back from Venezuela and like, He's given you this. Yeah, and what I love about Peter, too, is, like, he does, like, those transparency reports for his quarterly finances. Mm -hmm. And his expenses are always, like, quite high. And I'm always wondering, like, bro, what? Like, how do you have expenses? Do you do a podcast? But it's because every time, like, the dude travels to do interviews, which is crazy dedication. For stuff like this Venezuela thing, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a balanced article. The one thing I would add to the conversation, I was talking to Randy Brito of Bitcoin Venezuela last week for the happy hour live stream. And one thing that he cautioned was it's actually really hard to gauge adoption in Venezuela because the people who are using Bitcoin do not talk about it. They don't sell it for anything. They don't use it to buy stuff. Right. They, people don't want to accept it because if you do that, you become not only a target by the government, but you become a target from criminals because crime and murder in Venezuela has been on the uptick. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, – Peter in the article you know, offered that perspective as mm. well. I didn't really think of that before. Right. And I think that that's another thing to keep in mind, too. You know, it's not going to save Venezuela and people aren't using it in the ways that we might sometimes like to believe. Uh, But it is still seeing pretty significant adoption proportional to the rest of the world's population. Yeah, I think it's not. Yeah. So, again, like I do want to maybe I came off a little strong. No, you didn't come off strong. I'm just trying to clarify. Yeah, but that's (laughs) worth clarifying. Like definitely. Bitcoin's being adopted at record rates mm-hmm. in Venezuela. I think it's just, you see so much 
hype and like Venezuela is the number one yeah. use case that we point to to like look how great Bitcoin is. Yeah, it's like the Bitcoin fixes everything mantra. It's like I understand why they say that because like people like Michael Goldstein and Pierre Richard are like huge Bitcoin cheerleaders and they want they're, they're trying to, you know, it's propaganda. Right. And it's useful propaganda because Bitcoin gets so much negative FUD and right. stuff and reporting from the mainstream media. But Bitcoin doesn't fix everything. Right. It can help fix some things, but Bitcoin doesn't fix everything. Right. So pretty cool to see the original coverage. I would guess one of the first articles ever about the potential for Bitcoin in Venezuela. We've done a ton of coverage mm-hmm. since then. And now kind of like revisiting that with what I think is... A very a, sober look. Yeah, like a yeah. kind of a critical perspective correction yeah um, so pats on the back all around so we're doing great the last one i have here i wanted to talk about how we spent some time this week updating one of our most popular print infographics so it was originally in our 2019 print relaunch it's called an overview of compromise bitcoin exchange events and it kind of compares like history's greatest bitcoin hacks you know, in a way that lets you, like, so the price during Mt. Gox wasn't very high, but the relative amount of Bitcoin stolen is this huge number, mm-hmm. and the, the way we've set up the infograph is sort of meant to put that into perspective. So, Colin, you spent a lot of time this week kind of collecting data to update this with hacks that have happened since we first published this. What did you notice while you were kind of pulling that data together? One of the big takeaways for me is that I started to notice that as Bitcoin aged and altcoins entered the scene, the number of Bitcoin hacks on exchanges goes down while there's an inverse relationship. Amount of Bitcoin stolen by year decreases and the amount of altcoins stolen by year increases. Mm. And I think that's a combination of, I think it's a few things. I think it's number one, as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, exchanges and key stakeholders are doing everything they can to guard their war chests. Right. You know, they're going to keep the most up-to-date security measures and try their best. It's a combination of that and also the fact that, conversely, the altcoin casinos, as Nick Carter calls them, except for like Binance or your bigger ones, uh, have very low security parameters and just don't really put as much time or effort into it because they're just low-budget operations. Yeah. And so, therefore, they're more vulnerable. It's also... Some of the things that I researched were not hacks, as we label on, on the infographic compromises, because some of these were probably exit scams. But yeah, it's hard to verify, obviously, right? Right. Well, like Quadriga's on there. I yeah. don't know what word you can use for that other than compromise, because <laughs> I do because that's still man. I think people. I want to write a book on that uh, just because I think yeah, that like you're gonna write the Quadriga book that gets turned into a movie at some point. Do you, I mean I, it needs to because it's just so juicy. Yeah, I mean it's still juicy. I don't think Gerald Cotton's dead, bro. Like, all right, this is, that's, <laughs> another, that's another podcast for another time. I'm not going down with Dave's, Gerald Cotton. Dave's looking at yeah. me. <laughs> the only other one thing I'd highlight: Mount Gox. My goodness, dude, it's, and still, it's yeah, this huge bubble. On it's there. huge, and so to give people again to reiterate what Peter was saying, the way the graph works is that we show amount of Bitcoin, amount lost in Bitcoin at the time of the hack, and then if I'm wrong, correct me. But the spheres that represent each hack are 
like the size is proportional to how much that Bitcoin was worth at Bitcoin's all-time high. The the bubble size is sheerly the number of Bitcoin. So the, the oh, graph is okay, doubling down on this like, okay. this is just pure number of Bitcoin. And so if you look at the graph, the highest one will be Mt. Gox. Like right. the top of the graph will have the biggest circles they go down. So all we're doing is like double emphasizing really okay. like, if you're high up on the chart and if your bubble's big, that means just and sheer number of deal. Bitcoin taken. And yeah. Mt. Gox is like more than twice as big and way further up yeah. than anybody else. And, and dude, I think that... I'm going to go ahead and just spitball this. It could encompass all of the other hacks. I think it could. Maybe give or take a few yeah. a few thousand Bitcoin. Yeah. It could probably like an Agario or an Agar.io game. Like you could yeah. probably just swallow all the other ones, right? Yeah. And I think like kind of what you're pointing out here is like it's incredible how much of an indelible mark this left on the industry and like obviously people still remember it it's also for me you know knock on wood kind of encouraging that the most devastating hack in bitcoin happened when bitcoin was still relatively obscure yeah you know I mean, mount gox stands for uh, magic the gathering online yeah. exchange i think that's all anyone needs to know to be like <laughs> yeah exactly how early the days were when that happened that's um, a fun bit I of mean, trivia if you yeah if you if you charted the amount of money that, uh, what's his name, Laszlo maybe paid for two pizzas, yeah. you know, that would be this huge bubble. It's really just a symptom of Bitcoin wasn't worth anything when no one knew what it right. was, and now it's just worth a ton more. Right. All right, well, but that's all I have for today. Everyone should check out Bitcoin Magazine to read all the articles we discussed, plus a bunch of great ones that we really didn't get to. You can find both me and Peter on Twitter. Peter is at Peter Chihuahua. That's right. At I got Peter the Chihuahua. He got the handle. It's the one and only. One you can find me at As I Lay Hodling. Uh, we really appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll see you next week. That does it for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review so we can improve the show. The Bitcoin Magazine Weekly Bits podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was produced by Graham Peterson and David Hollerith. You can find more engaging podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB network for all the latest episodes. Thanks again for tuning in.